We started this podcast as a simple commitment between Casper and me. Once a week, we would sit in a room and treat Harry Potter as sacred, even if no one showed up. Now, we have 70,000 listeners we never could have imagined. We also now have Maggie, who makes sure that all of our local groups feel supported. We have Megan, who makes sure that we behave with integrity in the world. We have Chelsea, who produces the women of Harry Potter. And we have Ariana, who makes sure that every episode, every live show, everything we put out into the world is done to the highest possible standard. We make sure that we pay all of them a living wage. We are trying to be the change we want to see in the world. We are trying to only use fair trade merchandise products to give health care to all of our employees and pay time off. We are trying to save in order to plant a tree for every flight that we take. And we cannot be the company that every company should be without your support. With 70,000 listeners and 1,300 supporters on Patreon, that means that 2% of you support us on Patreon, and we are so grateful for your support. But we want to make it 3% of our listeners who support us on Patreon, which would mean 2,100 supporters. For $1 a month, you get an extra few minutes of bloopers. That's $1 a month for the feeling of being in the top 3% of our listeners. That level of success would even make Hermione happy. So join us. Be part of the top 3%. Join Casper and me in that room that gets more and more filled the more of you show up. We are so grateful that you are part of this community. I'd have sat in that room with Casper alone gladly, but I love having you here. Chapter 15, Aragog. Summer was creeping over the grounds around the castle. Sky and lake alike turned periwinkle blue and flowers large as cabbages burst into bloom in the greenhouse. I'm Casper Turkile. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. My mom's mom was not the warmest person throughout my childhood. I was around her all the time. You know, we went over there every Friday night for dinner and I saw her at least twice a week. But one of my first memories of her is that there was a Friday night we were over and I asked my mom for a piece of paper and a pencil to draw. And my mom said, ask your grandmother. And I looked at my grandmother and went, mm, not worth it and found something else to do. It just wasn't worth having a conversation with her to draw. But as she got older, she got softer. She got sweeter and kinder and gentler. And so much so that my junior and senior year of high school, I would go over after school once a week and I would just crawl into bed with her. She was pretty much bedridden the last few years of her life. And we would talk for a couple of minutes. We would giggle about something, probably something mean. And then we would nap. We would hold hands and nap. And and high school, you know, as for all of us nerds, high school was tough. And this bed with my grandmother became a sanctuary for me. It became a place where whatever drama had happened in school was irrelevant. And it was just a place of peace and love and laughter and a little bit of self-indulgence. And it's really my fondest memory of my grandmother is getting into that bed with her, holding hands and laughing and napping. 
And the reason I think that memory came up for me when reading this chapter of Aragog through the theme of sanctuary is because we see the Gryffindor common room change just in this chapter from being sort of a prison of the place where all the students have to be because the castle is unsafe to later it's this place of sanctuary for Harry and Ron. They've been in danger. And once they're back in the Gryffindor common room, they feel safe. And my grandmother was that for me. She was sometimes an unsafe place, but the last few years of her life, her bed really was just a sanctuary to me. And so I'm excited to think about what it means to have a sanctuary and what sanctuary is while we think through this chapter of Aragog. Vanessa, I love that a chapter which is about a terrifying spider can elicit such a tender story and such a beautiful memory. And I think all of us want a place like that, um, you know, a place of calm and and safety and joy. So thank you for sharing that. However, the 30-second recap is brutal, and uh, there's no space for cuteness and calmness in that space. I have years of napping behind me. I'm ready. <laughs> all the energy in the world, Turkile. Bring it on, Zoltan. Okay. Ready? Yeah. On your mark. Get set. Go. This chapter starts with Harry wondering with the words that Dumbledore left about, you know, anyone who's loyal to me. They're in Snape's classroom. Draco is showing off that he's cool and he wants Snape to be headmaster. Um, and then um, uh, they see some spiders and um, they rush down to get Fang and um, they use their cloak because they have to hide, blah, blah, blah. They go into the forest. The car uh, greets them. Then they find Aragog and Aragog's like, are you a friend of Hagrid's? And then they escape because the car helps them and um, the air of Slytherin something. The monster is not the Aragog. <laughs> You're so cute. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty rough. Okay, how about you? You ready? Three, two, one, go. Harry and Ron decide that because Hermione's in trouble and everybody is sort of, you know, scared that they're going to follow the spiders, take Hagrid's advice. So they go into the Forbidden Forest and they're really scared and they find they get captured by these spiders and they go and then they meet Aragog. And Aragog is like, I am not the monster. Hagrid had nothing to do with this. There is a monster. I can't even tell you the name. It's so terrible. But it killed a girl. The girl died in the bathroom. Harry, they escape because of the car and Harry's like, oh, my God, the girl in the bathroom is moaning Myrtle. And that's where I'm going to end. Well, it's good because that was 30 seconds. Thank you. That's why I was going to end there. <laughs> I respect limitations of the universe. Now that everybody knows everything exactly that happened in the chapters, Casper, where do you want to start talking about our theme of sanctuary? Well, you know, I was thinking about what makes a sanctuary a sanctuary. And one of the pieces that I think often happens, whether you walk into, you know, a space of worship or even just thinking of that scene of you and your grandmother Often silence is really important in these spaces. You talked for a little bit and then you would just nap together. Or if you walk into a church or a synagogue or, you know, another space of worship, often it just has this kind of hush about the space. And we see that as Harry and Ron walk into the forest. The text tells us they walked for about 20 minutes, not speaking, listening hard for noises other than the breaking of twigs and rustling of leaves. And so there's something about that space that even though it might be frightening, certainly the forest is, there's also something mysterious and something worshipful because of that silence. Does that make sense in some way? That completely makes sense to me. I think that silence leaves 
room, right? So it leaves room for a little bit of mystery and a little bit of reverence. Yeah, and you're reminding me that not only is it silent, you know, they also can't see anything. There's both the kind of loss of sound, the loss of sight. And in some way, there's all these kind of archetypal ideas. We've learned in divinity school about, you know, that there's different kind of theological ideas of how one might approach the divine or like, how do you grow in intimacy with something that people call God? And there's this idea of the via negativa, that it's not by accurately describing or capturing or painting, but it's actually by taking away everything that isn't God that you finally get to that kind of mystery. And suddenly I'm seeing that imagery in this chapter. I don't know, maybe I'm reading a little too much into it. I do not think that you are. And I never would have thought of the Forbidden Forest as sanctuary until, you know, reading this chapter. And then really it crystallized for me hearing you speak about it. But are sanctuaries always a little bit entangled with danger? Because, I mean, the root of sanctuary is the idea that churches and temples used to be places where criminals could literally hide and not be arrested, that it was a legal sanctuary. And I think that a church is a complicated place. It's a place where, depending on your denomination, you go to confess, you go to mourn, you go, you know, to engage in really intense moments. And then in the right context, it can also be a place of sanctuary. And the Forbidden Forest is obviously a place of tremendous fear and angst. And, you know, in the forest is a lot of different things over these seven books, but I love the idea that because it is also so many things, because the forest has so much enveloped in it, it is also a place of sanctuary. Well, and you're so right, because sure, it's scary for Ron and Harry, but for Aragog, you know, if you just imagine there is someone who's come from a foreign land and he is being given sanctuary in this forest, like this is a place where he can be safe. I love that idea. You know, you have the sanctuary movement, which is really blossoming again in churches gives people who are, you know, undocumented a place where they can be, where the law traditionally, as you said, doesn't encroach upon that kind of sacred space. But yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, that it's also a sanctuary space for characters in the book that aren't safe in the outside world. Right. Hagrid is sort of a priest to Aragog. Whoa! It's Aragog is this illegal creature who's been brought across borders and Hagrid gives him sanctuary first in a cupboard, but then gives him access to the forest and then has a very priestly relationship with Aragog where he's in constant communication and Hagrid is the one human who Aragog trusts. And it's that spiritual relationship that the two of them have that allows Harry some entrance. But you know, Harry isn't a priest figure to Aragog, and so that becomes more complicated. Right, and it becomes dangerous. This is making me think, you know, in the Jewish tradition where in the temple on the Holy of Holies, right, on one day the high priest is allowed to enter that very, very sacred space that is not allowed for anyone for the rest of the year. And so if anyone who isn't the high priest enters that space, it is very dangerous. Like they're not ready to deal with the majesty of experience that's there. That's exactly what's happening here. Like Harry and Ron are unauthorized to enter that space. Um, I just made a hand motion where my mind was blown. Explosion. <laughs> so Casper, I think what you're talking about within Judaism is the idea of Kohanim, of the Kohens. And for example, in Orthodox hospitals to this day, there are signs if there is a dead body on a floor, because if you are a Kohen, you will be 
unpurified if you are near a dead body. And so it's not just that you are allowed access to special rooms. It's that there are certain things that you can't have access to. And so, I mean, to this absence point, it means that there are other spaces that you can't go into. It's really interesting to think about those kind of boundaries of who is able to come in and who has to stay outside. Because in many ways, the car, right, the Weasley's car that bumped into the Whomping Willow and then escaped into the forest, it's now living in the forest, maybe has found sanctuary in the forest, becomes this kind of bridge crosser, right? First of all, it helps Harry and Ron find Aragog and the other spiders by giving light. And then it comes to rescue them. And so it's this kind of transitional I don't know, like a leader figure helping Harry and Ron travel into the sanctuary and then travel out again. Is there something there? Oh, absolutely. What's interesting to me, so Ron says to Harry, look, it's our car. What do you make of the hour? Is he saying our, the Weasley's car? Or is he saying our, like Harry and Ron's car? Because I think he's saying that it's Harry and Ron's. And I think that that is an argument for We have experienced something special in this car together, and so it is now ours, and it is. It becomes this, like, advocating force for them and this safe place for them, and I think that they have made it a sacred space by going through a trial together. Ooh, I like that. And the car, I think, feels the same way because the car, you know, as it's racing out of the forest, it loses one of its wing mirrors, you know, the little mirrors on the side. And so there's this kind of willingness to sacrifice. There's that theme, you know, which we've got to track throughout these books. There's a willingness to sacrifice for these boys. So I agree, like, the hour is not a possessive thing, but it's like a relational thing of like, we went through this together and we're connected in a way, which is beautiful. (laughs) Um, I just want to say I'm not trying to make light because I feel like we're having such a great conversation, but I just want to make a plug for dogs here. You know, we're sort of invited to love this car in this moment. And the way that it's described in the text is that it sort of responded to them like a dog. Just saying. Which is ironic because the dog that's with them, I'm like, Fang, baby, you're supposed to be scary. First of all, the teeth are stuck on the treacle tart, which Ron gives him. So it's like not super useful. Um, And then the poor thing is just terrified. He's so scared. He's such a wimp. I love him. But the Ford Anglia pup, super brave, super sweet. Just saying. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who have recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. 
Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning non-toxic perfumes and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own floor sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. I want to pick up on what you said, Vanessa, about this experience of going through a trial together that creates some sort of like a safety or a container. There's something about a sanctuary in that. You know, it makes me think of communities where you, through song or or story or ritual, where you kind of remind each other who we are and what we've been through together, that that kind of creates this thing. There's something in that that I want to explore with you. Yeah, that trial creates intimacy, and intimacy is a sort of sanctuary, right? It's a person can become a home base. A person can become a sense of safety, a symbol of security, and therefore a sort of sanctuary. Which is what happens with our trio. And I think the reason why Ron is so committed, and of course Harry as well, is part of that sanctuary has been taken away. Like Hermione has been, you know, it's crumbled and they want to rebuild it and they will do whatever it takes to keep that. Because in that relationship, you know, home is where the heart is. That's the same idea, I think. Absolutely. I'm just being reminded when I broke my ankle, once my mom showed up, I felt better. My mom wasn't a doctor. I was already at the doctor, right? So it's not like she could make anything better, but I felt better as soon as she was there. There's just a sanctuary sort of embodied in her, even when she's useless. Love you, mom. (laughs) But she's not useless, right? Like she can't do anything actual or tactile, but just like her presence is a sort of sanctuary. Can I point somewhere else in the text where I saw Sanctuary? Yes. Really, it's in the opening lines. The sky and the lake alike turned periwinkle blue and flowers as large as cabbages burst into bloom, which beautiful language, J.K. Rowling. She should really write something. (laughs) She's she's pretty good. What a talent. (laughs) (laughs) But there's something about 
you know, Hogwarts itself as sanctuary, but especially this notion of beauty. And I think, you know, it made me think about why do we create beautiful spaces? Like, what is that about? You know, in our home, communal beautiful spaces, and like sometimes being out in the natural world, looking across a mountain range or a sunset or a river, you know, sometimes that can feel very holy in some way, like there's an element of feeling like you're in the sanctuary of just the natural world. And I wondered, do sanctuary always have to be beautiful? I mean, isn't sanctuary just about a feeling of safety? It's a feeling of so much safety that you can really breathe. I mean, it's about safety and peace. And beauty, I think, helps because beauty inspires awe, which inspires a feeling of being able to meditate on, you know, the unknown. So I I certainly think that beauty never hurts, but I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's necessary for that feeling of sanctuary. Yeah. I mean, when we look at the etymology of the word, sanctuary comes from the Latin sanctus, which means holy. And I guess holy doesn't have to be beautiful, but maybe making it beautiful is more a response to what the sanctuary is and what the experience feels like. We want to honor it in some way. So we create the beauty to try and celebrate it. Yeah, I know we've talked about this weird thing that you and I do before, but a moment of sanctuary that I now have every year is when we go swimming at Walden Pond late once a year. And I think that there's a safety in knowing that I have good friends there. It's beautiful. It's comfortable. The water feels like a sanctuary. The sky feels like a sanctuary. But it could be a not nice night, and I still think it would feel holy. This is making me think of, in so many ways, it's our attitude to some things that might make it a sanctuary. And maybe what happens in a sanctuary is that we see the world through different eyes and we see the beauty that's already there. Because, you know, as you say, even if it was raining when we went to midnight swimming, it would still be beautiful, but in a different way. And so I'm wondering if it's really about the way that we look at the world that creates an experience of sanctuary or that creates beauty around us so that we find what's beautiful. That sounds very pat, like find the beauty wherever you are. But, and I'm sorry, that was an American accent. <laughs> when you said something pat. Oh, I'm going to say something shallow. Let me do my American accent. <laughs> but that is such a lovely call to me because there are certain places where I have to go And I work myself up into making them sort of a miserable thing when they're not actually a miserable thing. And so, like, what if I saw it as, like, a place of sanctuary where I was going and, you know, left certain attributes of myself outside and instead committed myself to finding the beauty and mystery in those situations? Even if it's the DMV waiting line. Yeah, I don't think I can do that. But (laughs) some places, not the DMV. Vanessa, this week is our final week of engaging in our spiritual practice of Chavruta. But let me ask you this question. We learn from Aragog that spiders are terrified of the monster that lives in the Chamber of Secrets. So terrified that they won't even name it, right? They're really terrified. I am trying to figure out why are they so afraid of the basilisk? You know, logically, it seems that Spiders are very small. The basilisk is really big. Why would the basilisk eat spiders? Is is that why they're afraid? Or is it something else? And the only answer I can come up with is that 
you know, spiders are maybe inherently good and the basilisk is evil and they're just like they can feel the evil or perhaps they can hear. Maybe the spiders speak parcel tongue. I, I'm clutching at straws and I really need some help here. I'm trying to think what I'm profoundly scared of. And is it possible that the spiders and the basilisk have never really met? And part of what the spiders are afraid of is the mythology around the basilisk? Because I think the unknown is often the most terrifying. What do you think about that theory? I like that. It's also making me think about the similarities between Aragog and the basilisk in that, you know, they're both there unbeknownst to most of the school. And Aragog surely knows about his own capacity to kill and to harm. He says very bluntly, like, unless you're Hagrid, I'm afraid, guys, you're fresh meat. So sayonara. And so maybe what he's afraid of in the basilisk is actually also in himself. Oh, interesting. Right? Like sometimes what annoys me most about other people are the things that I do that I don't like about myself. But so I'm wondering if it's sort of a recognition of maybe I don't want to hurt people, but I do. And that's what I see in the basilisk. So I'm not even going to name it. It's so interesting, though, right? Because if it's recognition and unknown, there are two things that complicate this. One, why not then name it? Because that'll make it less scary. You know, like name it Phil. And then you're like, oh, Phil. I don't know. I just feel like things become less scary if they're named Phil. <laughs> but also, what do we make of the fact that Aragog is blind? He can't see the basilisk, but would the basilisk still be able to see him? Because we find out that you have to lay eyes on the basilisk in order for it to kill you. So could Aragog even be killed by the basilisk? Oh, oh, Vanessa, sometimes the things that we fear most are the things we are, in fact, uniquely able to overcome, right? Like Aragog cannot be harmed by the basilisk because he can't see it. So, like, he's maybe the one who could end the basilisk's reign of terror, right? Like, there's something about the thing that we feel most terrified of doing is the thing that will set us free. And I wonder if this is actually a metaphor about that. To think of an example, like, before I came out, like, the most terrifying thing that I could imagine was people knowing that I was gay, right? You're like, gay! I know! <laughs> My husband's freaking out right now. <laughs> But, like, once I came out, it was the most liberating thing in the world, right? So the thing which can be most frightening, actually, it's not to say we have to do it immediately, but when we can get there, it's actually the most fantastic thing to happen. So Aragog should confront the basilisk. Yeah, Aragog should be like, hey, Phil, what are you doing Friday? And then, like, come with a sneaky little sword and just be like, let's go. So while we're in this weird place, help me make sense of why the rooster's crow is the only thing other than like the sort of Gryffindor, apparently, that can kill the basilisk. I mean, a rooster's crow is about new dawn starting over and like the basilisk wants to kill muggleborns. So it's like, I mean, it's about being afraid of change, right? I feel like a rooster's crow is a call of change. A new day has dawned. I like that. I mean, the other thing which I'm thinking of is that the rooster is kind of small and harmless, right? These birds can't even fly. And roosters are to a penny, right? They're super ordinary. And again, I think there's something about sometimes it's the most ordinary, right? And in some ways, this is the Harry's story. It's, it's the most ordinary child who happens 
to be able through this long arduous journey to overcome the most evil thing in the world and i and i think that's encapsulated in this story and what the text is telling us is that even if we feel like we're nothing special that we have nothing unusual to give we're not particularly strong or clever or fast or whatever it is you know like david and goliath actually that gives us something special to overcome the most frightening thing so i i love that actually the most simple harmless creature has this unique power to overcome the most frightening thing this week's voicemail is from heather mcdonald hey guys uh my name is heather mcdonald i'm from sacramento and i am obsessed with your podcast i've gotten all my friends to start listening so you're welcome but um i just finished your chapter uh, about writings on the wall and you started talking about guilt and this idea of having guilt within innocence or you know that you've done nothing wrong but you still kind of feel guilty somehow or or i don't know and it got me thinking about a relationship that i had lasted about two years and it was really emotionally abusive um it was very difficult for me to move past and I carried so much responsibility for what happened and I had so many people telling me, you know, like this wasn't your fault and um, just because you loved someone fully doesn't mean, you know, you've done anything wrong and uh, I, 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 the more I kind of thought about that and I got out of that place, the more I realized I think I needed to feel guilty and feel like somehow it was my fault because that implied somehow that I had a decision or a choice to make. And I think while there's a lot of bad things about guilt, like you talked about with the um, original sin, I think guilt is a weirdly powerful tool that, that you have some say or that, I don't know, with this relationship in particular, the idea that I let this happen to me or I asked for these things to happen to me gave me the confidence and the strength to then move forward and say, but in the future, I won't. And so therefore, I will not be abused and I will not be taken advantage of. And that was a really powerful tool for me to be able to uh, move forward and, and move forward with confidence that I'm safe. So, I don't know, just kind of putting guilt in that perspective of power in a weird way. Uh, I just love your podcast, guys. Thank you so much for this. I look forward to it every single week. And like I said, I'm getting everybody on the bandwagon. So, thanks. Oh my God, Heather, I love that idea. Yeah, that guilt actually acknowledges the agency that we have, that it's a way into claiming our own power. And again, you know, the difference between guilt and shame, shame is I am bad, guilt is I did something bad so I can do it differently. So love that. Heather, I also just really liked that point. And I think that guilt at minimum can be an opportunity to reflect, a feeling that can allow us the opportunity to reflect on what we did, even if the conclusion we came to is, you know, the fault doesn't end up on me. Thanks also for telling all your friends. You know, that means a lot to us when people tell us that they share the podcast with friends and family. So thank you so much for listening and, and sending that in, Heather. It's time for us to bless someone we met in the pages of this chapter. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week? I want to bless Hermione because she is missing so much school this year. And, you know, I've been sick and had to, like, miss things in life. So I want to bless Hermione as a symbol for all the people who are in bed right now and not able to do everything that they want to be doing. Um, I think Hermione is with you in this moment and so made me think of you. Casper, who would you like to bless? My blessing is for the car. I just freaking love the car. <laughs> I mean, like, 
showing up when you're needed without anyone asking, doing what needs to be done, being brave in the face of danger. Oh my gosh, this car is amazing. And being willing to do something good without any credit, like earning any sort of reward from it. And I think so often what the world needs from us is is that kind of unselfish generosity where we know what's right and we do it without expecting praise. And that's that's hard. And I think the car is a symbol of what we can do in the world. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Next week, we'll read Chapter 16, The Chamber of Secrets, through the theme of grace. We're thrilled to say that we have transcripts of Episodes 1 and 2 of Book 1 now on the website. So if you want to read through what we said or if you want to share with folks who aren't able to listen, please do check out the transcripts. And a huge thanks to Oscar Caddo for doing all of that hard work for us. We are so grateful. Please subscribe and review the show on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our social media coordinator is Jen Stark. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is part of the Panoply Network. You'll find ours and other great shows at panoply.fm. Thanks to Heather McDonald for this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you next week. He slides through the tubes of the castle. <laughs> Phil, stop it with your ripping and your killing. Right? Oh, what are we going to do about Phil this week? I'm Joseph Fink, and I'd like to introduce you to I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, a podcast about the shifting line between artist and fan. When I was a child, reading the authors that I loved and listening to the music that I loved, the thing I got from that is that feeling of, of being understood somehow, and that weird connection, where it's not the person, it's not the stranger, it's the thing they've made that opens this space for self-reflection. I only listen to The Mountain Goats. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.